Father, we do thank you today that we are called your friend, Lord God, and we thank you today that you desire to speak to our hearts. And so we give you this moment right now as we approach your word, Lord God, we do so reverently. We also do so expectantly, Lord God, believing that you desire to speak to your people today. And so we thank you for this time. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It is, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. It is good to be in God's house. If you have your Bibles, you can open up Acts chapter 11. We're going to jump right into it today. Acts chapter 11. Going to begin reading there today in, uh, in verse 19. Um, Acts chapter 11, verse 19. So open your Bibles, turn them on, whatever you got to do, okay? Follow along with us. It says there in verse 19, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May God bless the reading of his word today. Verse 19, are you there? Begins by reminding us of the very first exodus of believers from Jerusalem. Again, those who were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, if you remember the persecution that we saw back in chapter 7, can we get a little more light in the house? I want to see your faces out there. Uh, chapter 7, there was the persecution that took place, right? Stephen preached and he was martyred. He became the, the first martyr of the church. In chapter 8, verse 1, we read of this wave of persecution that was caused by Saul of Tarsus in Jerusalem. All the believers in Jerusalem were, were stirred up and they were scattered. Now, Remember, Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 8, gives us the theme of the entire book of Acts. If you want to know what Acts is about, it's right there in verse 8, where Jesus said, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and at all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's the theme that runs throughout the book, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to live as a witness of Jesus Christ. But here's what you need to understand if you decide to practice Acts 1-8. If you say, man, I want to live a life full of the Holy Spirit. I want to live a, a life that is a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If your desire is to live out Acts 1-8, then the result will likely be Acts 8-1, which says this, at that time, a great persecution came against the church. 
So if you obey Acts 1-8, you can expect 8-1. In other words, if you live as a witness of Jesus, you can expect persecution. And you might say this morning, well, that's an encouraging word, Pastor. Thank you for that. I needed to hear that. But you do need to hear that. Because you need to know this today, that when you live as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the truth of the word of God, you will be persecuted. One of the most discouraging things I'm seeing across America is a church that is staying silent in order to avoid persecution. But the only way you can avoid persecution in a godless culture is to stay silent. And can I just say, even that's not enough anymore. It's, it's not enough to just stay silent. We're told silence is violence, right? In other words, if you don't sign off on godless behavior, if you don't affirm someone in their sin, if you don't affirm even this insane gender ideology that's going around, then, well, you must hate people. Can I just say, it's exactly the opposite. We need to love people enough to speak the truth. We speak the truth in love, but we love them enough to speak the truth. And, and, and so to push back on what's taking place in our culture right now and to live godly means you will be persecuted. And so I want to say just expect it, okay? Because here's what the world does with things that we know are sinful so often. First, they demand tolerance. It's no big deal. Just let people live their life. What does it matter the way that they live their life, right? Just tolerate it. But eventually, that's not enough, and the, and the world moves from this place of tolerance to saying, well, now you need to accept it. But that's not enough, and eventually, the world will say, well, now you need to celebrate this, and if you're not celebrating it, well, you must be hateful against those who do. But the final step they ask for is participation. You need to take part. You need to affirm this as well. Otherwise, you're not loving. And can I just say, don't buy the lie. Learn to call sin, sin from the beginning. That's the most loving thing you can do. Learn to, to lovingly say, no, I understand from the word of God, that's not what God has called me to do. That's not what he's call, how he's called me to live. Otherwise, the pressure will never end. Understand, 1 Timothy 3.12 uh, says this, that when you live in a godless, when you live godly in a godly, godless culture, right? Peter says clearly there, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ, you know the rest of it, will be persecuted. <laughs> Put that on a, on a coffee mug, right? Put that verse on a coffee mug. It's a promise. If you love to highlight the promises of God, highlight that one. Live godly, you're going to suffer the consequences. Hear me today, church. I want you to understand this because you cannot determine the will of God in a godless culture simply by following the path of least resistance. When you declare the truth and you live by the truth in a culture that's built on lies, you can expect to be hated by the world. When you say, you know what, as far as I understand it, from the word of God, God created male and female. You know what, you're going to get persecuted for that. You're going to be laughed at. You're going to be mocked for that. When you celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade and the fact that lives will be saved when abortions are not as accessible, you will be marginalized. And so there's this persecution that's taking place in the early church as they declare the truth of who God is. But I want you to understand this persecution for us as well when we stand upon the word of God and the truth of God. And it's because of this persecution, though, that the early church is scattered. Now look at this. They travel as far as... Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. Now, when you read the names of cities in Scripture, I think it's a good idea to look at a map, that you find out where these places really are. I'm a map guy. I love maps. And when I'm driving, I, I like to see the map on the GPS. I, I want to know where I am. It drives my wife crazy. She's like, it'll tell you when you need to turn. I say, I don't want to know when I need to turn. Where am I right now? Like, what am I passing? Where am I going, right? I remember as a child um, going on road trips with my parents and 
Some of you may remember this. Before we had GPS, we had what was called a road atlas. Remember those things? You buy them at Walmart. They're like huge. You know, nowadays you can't hold your phone because that's dangerous. But we used to have a map open. We're driving, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that was crazy. That was dangerous, right? But I remember as a kid, we were going across country one time, and I got to sit shotgun. I had the road atlas open. I'm just tracking. Oh, we're here, and this is where we're going. I don't know if I got it at Caldors or Bradley's. I'm dating myself. But one of those places, right? <laughs> But I love studying the map as we drove. And so here's a map for you. For those of you that love maps, here's a map for you. The rest of you, uh, you can tune out for a moment. But I want you to see this, okay? Uh, We need to understand where these places are when you talk about them. Uh, Lebanon is ancient Phoenicia, okay? Cyprus is that island out in the Mediterranean off the coast of Israel, off the coast of ancient Syria and Phoenicia. And Antioch, this is Antioch of Syria, okay? that I just mentioned last week is going to become an important hub of Christianity. It will be a hub of the, the journeys of Paul. That's Antioch. And, and so remember what was at one time this, this small group of believers in Jerusalem grew, and that small group was scattered, and some went to Damascus. And, of course, Saul of Tarsus heads to Damascus thinking that he can stop the spread of the gospel. He thinks, man, it's early enough. This hasn't spread too far. I can head it off at the pass. I'll go to Damascus, and it's not going to go any further. And so he heads to Damascus to seize the, the Christians there, the believers there. But on the way, Jesus Christ seizes a hold of him, takes a hold of his life. You see, at one point, the Sanhedrin thought they could contain the message of Jesus. They, they thought they could stop it. They, again, authorized Saul, at any cost, you stop this message but now it's become uncontrollable. Truth is, it was always uncontrollable, right? But now it's just everywhere in all these places. And here's what's so amazing is that this happens um, not in spite of persecution, but because of persecution. It, it's, it's like trying to stomp out a, a fire by stepping on it, but in the process, you're spreading sparks everywhere, right? And so all these embers, all these sparks of the gospel are spreading Saul tried stomping out the gospel, and so all these little fires are popping up here and there. On fire, believers everywhere. The gospel message is burning bigger and bigger. It's out of control. But notice what it says in the text there. It says, they preach to no one except Jews. Luke then writes this. He says, but there were some of them, there were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this city of Antioch, because there wasn't just one Antioch, okay? There's another Antioch you're going to read about in a couple chapters. It says Antioch, but it's a different Antioch, okay? This was Antioch of Syria, okay? It was a a city in Syria named after one of the four generals of Alexander the Great named Seleucus, okay? He named Antioch after his father, okay, Antiochus, And so Seleucus was going around, he's naming all these cities, he's like, I'll name that one Antioch, and that one Antioch, and that one Antioch, he loved the name, right? Why did he do this? Same same reason George Foreman named all his kids George, right? He liked the name, I'm going to call them all George, right? So this is Antioch of Syria, that's how we distinguish which Antioch this is. And it was right on the Orontes River, which connected with the ocean, and so it's this perfect trade route. There's all these highways running straight through it. And so Antioch was very metropolitan. If you think of Antioch, think of New York City. It's this place of trade, but it was also a very worldly place. And at the time of Paul, the population was probably about a half a million people. You had Greeks and Romans and Jews, even some from the Orient that were there. They all lived here in Antioch, and it was just this this great melting pot of all these different cultures. 
But look at verse 20 again. It says, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So there's this debate uh, about the word Hellenist here in verse 20. And the question is, who is Luke referring to here? Was he referring to Greek-speaking Jews as he did in chapter 6? Remember, it was the Hellenist who complained that their widows were being overlooked in the, in the daily distribution? Or is he referring to non-Jewish Greeks? You see, that word Hellenist, Hellenistas, could be used either way. But I think here he's just talking about plain Gentiles, pagans, if you will. Luke has, has used the word before to refer to Greek-speaking Jews, but here he uses it differently. He's speaking of non-Jewish Greeks. Now, why would I say that? It's because of that one little word, but, right? Notice at the end of verse 19, but some of these men from Cyprus and Cyrene, they spoke to the Hellenists. And so Hellenists here, I've got to understand this, is non-Jewish Greeks, just Gentiles, complete unbelievers, no Jewish background. Because if the word Hellenist here meant Greek-speaking Jews like it did in chapter 6 and 7, it'd be no big deal, right? Remember in Jerusalem with, with Stephen, Stephen preached in the synagogue already to the Hellenists. It wouldn't be a big deal to bring up the gospel with them. They're not just speaking to Jewish people of Greek background, but to complete pagans, okay? Now, keep that in mind as we continue. But they do two things here. It says this, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. They believed, in other words, they had faith, but they also turned. It sounds a lot like repentance, right? They had faith and repentance. We need both of those, right? Faith in Christ, but then there's also a turning to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the, the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose for he was a good man. I love this description of Barnabas. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So they sent Barnabas all the way up to Syria, all the way up to Antioch. When the gospel went to Samaria, they would send an apostle to go check it out, right? Now they sent Barnabas, who's not an apostle. He had no apostolic credentials, but he was full of faith and he was full of the Holy Spirit. And so just to refresh your memory, we met Barnabas all the way back in Acts chapter 4, right? I think that was in the spring sometime. I don't remember, right? A ways back. And his name wasn't originally Barnabas, okay? He had a different name, but the church named him Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Why? Because in Acts chapter 4, he had this land in Cyprus, and he sold that property, and he took all the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. So he encouraged the church, first of all, with his finances, do you know you can be an encouragement to the church with your finances, right? When you say, I believe in the work of the Lord enough that I'm going to invest in it. The word of God says that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Simple rule of life, write this down, your heart will always follow your treasure. Your heart will always follow your treasure. As soon as you invest in something, automatically your heart goes right there, right? Don't believe me? Just buy some stock this week. I'm not telling you which one to buy. This is not a prophetic moment in the service. But if you buy some stock, all of a sudden your heart's going to go there, right? All of a sudden you're going to start caring about a, a company you didn't even know their name last week, right? So hear me. If you want your heart to be about the kingdom of God, put your treasure there. Put your time there. Put your resources there. And I guarantee you, your heart will follow. I, I think of all the amazing volunteers we had here this week, an amazing group of volunteers here every night for VBS. If you want to know who they are, they look tired today, all of them. They're kind of <laughs> running on empty. 
right? They gave out so much this week, and it was such a blessing. Thank you for those, amen, come on, who invested in the lives of our children this week. And, and I believe that's going to have an eternal reward in their lives. But, but here's what I can guarantee, that those who served this week in VBS, they're more committed to this house and they're more committed to the kingdom of God than they were at the beginning of the week, right? Because where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. And so here's Barnabas. They, they call him son of encouragement. And what an encouragement it is, right? He sells that, that land in Cyprus and he says, you know what? I'm going to encourage the church. This is going to help the poor believers in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 9 he provides encouragement again. At this point, they just refer to him as Barnabas, right? Acts chapter 9, he's an encouragement to Saul of Tarsus because you remember Saul was saved on the way to Damascus, and he was in the city of Damascus for a while, and then he left and went down to Arabia for about three years. He comes back to Damascus, and he, he boldly preaches the gospel, and he gets in trouble. Remember, they want to kill him, right? And so they have to lower him down the city wall in a basket, and he goes from there and he goes to Jerusalem and he tries to join the church to become a part of the, the community in Jerusalem. But the believers there are like, we know about this guy. We're not, uh, they did not believe that he was saved. They didn't want him coming into the assembly. But it says that, that Barnabas took Saul and he brought him to the apostles and he testified how, man, this guy boldly proclaimed Jesus up in Damascus, right? Barnabas stood up for, for, for Saul at that time and he said, man, he's truly saved. He's indeed born again. Now, here in chapter 11, he's encouraging the church again. He's going up to Antioch, he's fellowshipping with these new believers, and he's following up on the decision that they've made to make sure, man, these people need to be grounded in their faith. And notice what it says he told them to do. He exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. His message was basically this, guys, don't quit, don't give up. You made the right choice, Life's going to get hard around here. It's not always going to be easy to follow Jesus, but I just want you to know, don't ever give up. Keep, keep going, right? And, and they needed to hear that because here's the reality. Any relationship, even a relationship with the Lord himself, we can have some issues. We can have some problems, right? That relationship can be tested. There will be difficulties that come as, as we walk with the Lord. Listen, following Jesus is, is amazing, but it's not always going to feel amazing. And that's where you need to hear the commitment message, right? Just stay with it, man. Don't give up. Don't quit. With purpose of heart, follow the Lord. Keep watch and keep at it. Because some people I've heard through the years, they just kind of disappear. And I find them later on. They say, yeah, you know what, Pastor? I'm just not into Jesus anymore. Like I used to come to church and read the Bible. And it's just, you know, the feeling kind of waned. And I'm like, really? And, and you never expected that feeling to wane? That's like a husband and wife sitting and saying, you know, we were so madly in love, but you know, we lost that love and feeling. Oh, that love and feeling. It's <laughs> gone, 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 right? right? And, and what would I say to a couple like that? I say, so get it back, right? Go, go find it. Get it back, right? Be committed to each other and watch what happens when you live by commitment rather than feelings. Watch how the feelings follow the commitment that you make. That's where the gift of exhortation and encouragement is needed. In, in the ESV, the word there is exhortation, but I, I think encouragement's a little different. Encouragement is not just telling a person, stay with it and, and get with it, right? It's walking with them through that. And so encouragers, okay, if you have that gift, I know many of you do, if you're that person, keep at it because we desperately need you. Find those brothers and sisters who, man, you see their head is hanging a little low and their, their knees are weak and you get behind them and you hold them up and you give them a second wind. Encourage them with purpose of heart that they should continue 
with the Lord. It says this about Barabbas again. He was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was full of faith. He was an encourager. It says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year, they assembled with the church and they taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. So picture this. In Tarsus, there's Saul and he's waiting. In Antioch, Barnabas is thinking, man, who can I get to come and help out with this, right? Now, when you think about Saul and you think about his, his amazing ministry, we don't necessarily understand the process. We don't understand the time of preparation because Saul's back home in Tarsus. His whole life had been flipped upside down, and now he's kind of wondering what's next. Remember, he received a prophecy in Damascus from Ananias that he would be a witness before kings and, and Gentiles and even the children of Israel. But get this, he was around 34 years old when he received that word for his life. And now he's likely around 46 years old. So there was this encounter with God. There was this prophetic word spoken over his life, but that was 12 years ago. Like, we read the book of Acts and we think all this happened really quickly, right? Like in a year's time. Listen, we can't even get through a series on the book of Acts in a year, okay? It was spread out over time, right? But don't miss Saul's journey. Again, he's radically saved on his way to Damascus at 34 years old. He spends three years in Arabia before coming back to Damascus and preaching the gospel. And when he does, there's such a violent reaction that they have to sneak him out of the city so he's not put to death. He goes to Jerusalem where Barnabas again spoke up for him. And somewhere there it's decided, hey, Saul, it's, this is not safe. Like, it's not safe, especially that you would be here in Jerusalem. You're too much of, of a threat. And so he goes back home to Tarsus at the age of about 37 years old. But now he's 46 years old. It's a good age. I think it's a really good age. And I wonder, as I read this passage, Man, what is Saul thinking? I wonder if he's struggling in the waiting, right? I've been waiting 12 years and I still haven't seen the prophecy, that prophecy come to fulfillment in my life. They say when one door closes, another always opens, but they also say it's hell in the hallway, right? In that process of waiting, you're believing God for something, but you're in that process of waiting. But I want to tell you today, if you're waiting today, you need to trust God's timing. And you need to trust God's preparation. He's preparing you in the waiting. Because in Antioch, there's a praying man. There's, there's a man of encouragement in Barnabas. Barnabas is looking at the city of Antioch, and it's this unusual city. All this commerce, all this trade, all these cultures. At the same time, there's all this sin that surrounds him. I mean, there in the temple, there was temple prostitutes, right? He sees Jewish people and Greek people and Roman people, and, and he thinks, who could be a leader in this city? He thought, I know a guy. That guy Saul. He's over in Tarsus. Like, that's not very far away. Because here's the reality Saul was Jewish. He was a Hebrew. He says this of himself I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew all the traditions, all the rituals of rabbinic Judaism. But he was also Greek by culture. He was a Hellenistic Jew, right? He was a, a Greek speaking Jew, Greek culture Jew in that part of the world. In fact, he would eventually stand on the Oropagus in Athens, and he's going to quote some of the great Greek writers and authors of that time. He knew Greek culture as well. 
He just like literally quotes them from literature, right? And so he's Jewish. He's trained in rabbinic Judaism. He's Greek by culture. He's also a Roman citizen. Later on, he's going to pull out his Roman citizenship and saying, you know, I was born, you know, my father was a Roman citizen. He passed it on to me. So Jew, Greek, Roman. Saul of Tarsus was the perfect guy for the job. But sometimes it takes a Barnabas to go and find a Saul. Sometimes it takes a Barnabas to go and call out a Saul. And can I just say this this morning? Some of you may never be that upfront person. You may never be that that leader that's in the spotlight that everybody sees, but God's called you to be a Barnabas. God's called you to, to call out the gifts of God in others and to encourage them and help them to step into their purpose. Thank God for the Barnabases in my life. When I doubted, just said, you can do this. Come on. You know what God's called you to. Come on. I got this, right? You got this. We're going to walk with you. We're going to encourage you. And hear me today. Your greatest accomplishment in life may not be what you do, but who you inspire. Who you inspire, who you encourage, who, who you lift up. And, and it's my desire, is, as I invest in others, I always want to see them greater, right? I want to see them rise to, to, a, to a higher level than us. That should be our, our, our desire, right? So, so Barnabas is this son of encouragement. He risks his life and limb to find Saul in Tarsus, right? He didn't just text him and say, Saul, where are you at, man? Let's go. I need you over here, right? He has to go to Tarsus and, like, literally track this guy down, Right? And he brings him to Antioch, and he teaches with him in Antioch for a whole year. And do you know what? If he hadn't done this, half of the New Testament would not have been written. Think about that. Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement, a, a guy full of the Spirit and, and full of faith, I think he deserves a little bit more credit. All right? We did some baby dedications this morning. There were no Barnabases on the stage. I think we need to start naming more of our kids Barnabas, Okay? The only challenge is what they're going to be called in the playground, okay? It'll either be Barney Rubble or that purple dinosaur. It's a little challenging, right? But Barnabas, I don't think he gets enough credit, right? Because just to go and find Saul and encourage him in his calling, he was like, man, this is the perfect guy. I'm going to go and find him. And Saul of Tarsus becomes Paul the apostle who's going to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And what Saul of Tarsus discovers after over a decade of waiting is the power of encouragement. Can I just say encouragement is powerful. Encouragement is powerful when it's appropriate. It's powerful to come and encourage someone in the Lord. Yeah, you can do it. I'm with you. I'll stand with you. You, you know what God's spoken over your life. Come on, let's go after it, right? We'll do this together. And that's what I see here. And so for a whole year, they're teaching in Antioch. That's where Saul gets his start in ministry, and it says, and in Antioch, now, this is one of the most important verses in the book, okay? In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. They were first called Christians. And here's what you need to know about that word Christian. It was not a friendly term. It was never a term that, that Jesus used, okay? It was not a term that was used by the early church. It, it was not a term that was used by Jewish people. It was a term used by unbelievers in Antioch first, right? And, and it's not used much in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used three times. And so how did Jesus refer to his followers? Well, he called them his friends. He called them his children, right, his beloved, right? The early church referred to Christians not as Christians but as believers, but now it's a very common term. Now, the last time the word is used in Scripture, it's used by Peter. And again, today, it's, it's a very common term. But 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter writes this, verse 14. He says this, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are 
blessed. Another good one to put on a, on a mug, right? For the spirit of God and the glory of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. He says, don't suffer because you're just a troublemaker. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. Christian, that you bear the name of Christ. Now, the Greek word there is christianos, christianos, right? And that little suffix, ianos, was a, was a common suffix to refer to, first of all, a slave in a household. For instance, if you were a slave in the household of Caesar, they would call you Caesar ianos, okay? A slave in the household of Caesar. So it meant a slave or a follower. And so my question to you today, Christian, is does that describe your life? Are you a slave of Jesus Christ? Are you one that follows Jesus Christ? Not just one who thinks, man, there's probably a God up there somewhere, and so I'm going to come and hang out at church. Church is a cool place, right? I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of Jesus. I, I, I'm, I'm team Jesus, right? I'm, I'm cool with him, right? But can I just say, that doesn't make you a Christian. Are you a slave of Jesus? Are you a follower of him? If, if you say that you're a Christian, that implies that you follow him and you take your orders from him. He's Lord and you're not. He's the master. You're the servant. Jesus is not your homeboy and he's not your co-pilot. He's in control. Christianity, hear me, is not about giving Jesus a part in your story. God, I got a cool role for you to play. Why don't you come over here? I got a part for you, right? It's about understanding he's already got the leading role. And you and I are invited to be a part of his story. We're part, invited to be a part of his kingdom. He invites you into a relationship with him, and it's out of that relationship that you submit your life and you submit your agenda to Jesus. Say, God, you, you know what's best. I'm going to submit everything to you. I heard someone once say that some people have a hard time obeying Jesus Christ because they have a hard time taking orders from a stranger. Let that sit in, sink in for a moment. It could be that if you're here today and you're honest about your relationship with Jesus personally, you would say, you know what, he is a stranger to me. And if that's the case, then you're not a Christian, but I want to tell you at the same time that Jesus invites you to a relationship with him. Because this is not a term that we should use to label anyone who has any kind of affiliation with the church. The real question is, are you a slave of and a follower of Jesus Christ? Because that's what the original term meant. They were first called Christians at Antioch. Now look at verse 27. Verse 27 there. It says, during this time... Some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them was named Agabus, and he, he stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. So this man Agabus, he, he's a prophet that could predict the future, and he does that right here. He does that later on with Paul. We're going to see him again. And, and so he predicted there would be a famine, which, by the way, did happen. History shows there were four famines throughout this time, two in Rome, one in Greece, and one in Judea, and the famine in Judea was by far the worst. The famine affected Judea the worst, and that's the one that this prophet predicted. Agabus was a true prophet. He predicted something, and it actually happened. Now, verse 29 says, the disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. 
So it's the worst famine in history. I mean, from 41 to 54 AD, and the believers at Antioch say, you know what? We got to do something about this. And so they receive the very first benevolence offering. They say, we're going to collect the benevolence offering, and, and we're going to bring it down to our brothers and sisters in Judea. It says in verse 30, this they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. I want you to see something as we close chapter 11, as the worship team comes. I want you to see something as we close here, though. It's Barnabas that's mentioned first, and it's Saul that's mentioned second. You're going to see that for a little while. But you'll also read soon enough in the chapters ahead where that changes, and it becomes Paul and Barnabas. And the leader seems to be under the one that he's trained and he's encouraged, and Paul's going to take the lead. And I love the story of Barnabas, and I just want you to think of this man's life as we close. Because so often when we think of great people, we think, we think only of them, and we fail to think of who's behind that great person, right? We all know the name Martin Luther and the 95 Theses on the, the castle door there at Wittenberg, right, in 1517. Martin Luther, this great reformer. But nobody mentions his assistant, Melanchthon, his assistant who helped translate the New Testament for Luther so that he could understand Scripture the way that he did and do what he did. And so I really believe that in the church, the gift of encouragement is so needed. Again, King James says it's exhortation, but I, I know a lot of people who say, Pastor, well, I, I've got the gift of exhortation. And what they really mean is they've got the gift of condemnation. Can I just say there's no such thing? Say, I got the gift of, of pointing the finger and, and, and telling people where they're wrong. That's the gift of the sermon, that's, that's a gift, right? But, but there's no gift of condemnation. There's a gift of encouragement or exhortation. That means when you see something off in a brother or sister's life, that you don't just point the finger and point it out, but you come alongside them and you encourage them. You say, you know what? Let's, let's, let's get back on track here. Let's get back on track. There's no gift of condemnation and finger pointing. It's not in the text. It's not in the scripture. You're not going to find it, right? But I think all of us as believers, we need to understand the grace of God. It's the grace that God was trying to teach to Peter when he said, what I've cleansed, you don't call common. And hear me today because sometimes when you see God at work in someone's life and something begins to be off, we are so quick to judge, Right? We're so quick to judge, but what God has cleansed don't call common. We as, as a church ought to come around each other and encourage one another and lift each other up. Again, when we see that head that's hanging low, we ought to encourage him. You know what? God's still faithful. And we need to be gracious with one another. We need to be tenderhearted. We need to be forgiving one another even as Christ has forgiven us. Think of this man, again, Barnabas, a good man full of the Holy Spirit, and full of faith. May that be said of us. Amen. May that be said of us. Would you stand with me as we prepare to close today? If you're here today, and you would call yourself a Christian today, say, you know what? I, I am a follower of Christ. I'm submitting my life to him. I mean, there's places where, let's be honest, we submit it and we take it back up, right? But I'm trying daily to surrender every area of my life to him. As, as, we, as we close today, here, here's two, two, the call's twofold. Let this be your prayer. Number one, God, I surrender to you again. Lord, I recognize whatever I'm walking through today, your Lord, your master, you call the shots, right? And so I surrender to you. And secondly, I'd ask you to pray this. God, would you use me this week to encourage another? 
Help me again see that head that's hanging low. Help me to speak words of encouragement to others. Let that be our prayer as we, as we close today. Here's the reality. I believe as you're full of the Holy Spirit, as you live a life full of the Holy Spirit, you will become an encourager. You will be. There, there'll be something that changes in your heart and your mind when you see someone that God gives you a compassion. He gives you a heart for someone to, to come along and encourage them. And so maybe today it's just saying, God, fill me fresh anew with your Holy Spirit. Help me to be that encourager that you've called me to be. I'm convinced there are some Saul's among us that need a Barnabas, that need someone to call out the gift and the calling of God on their life. And so as we close today, let that be your prayer. God, use me this week to encourage someone around me for your glory.